0: recording and we're recording okay guys happy to have you welcome back to our channel we are here to keep you in the loop and today we are here with Chris who is here to bring some fresh insight into the you know the craziness of the world right what is happening in the macro lots of carnage across the board so Chris could you just briefly introduce yourself to our audience
1: uh sure i'm chris patel i am a technically a retail investor um but i have been in the market for a really long time i try to value companies and look at companies from a lot of different perspectives i think some people do it just purely based on numbers some do it based on pure dreams i try to combine both of those together and hopefully we get somewhere in the middle where we can have a profitable uh profitable venture you know so that's that's where i am i work in healthcare i.t um i work in middle management and uh yeah and i pretty much do a lot of implementation of new technology so i try to lend a lot of that experience into my investing because i think i have unique insights into things that people don't necessarily see like when some people says buy crowdstrike i ask them why they don't really know other than oh it's a really good company and i'm like well i can tell you why because i actually use the product like i see it every day so I can probably give you the reason why CrowdStrike is a good company, right? So a lot of people, when they talk, they, they're they just, you know, parroting other people's stuff. I try to bring in my own um, experience to give you guys some details as to why I think a company is good or bad. And, if, and some of it is from personal experience, um, and some of it is probably from um, a, a lot of deep insights and research into it. I also tend to talk to a lot of people like i actually will physically go out and reach into my contacts pool to reach out and say hey can i have a conversation with you about a specific company i know you're in the field you know please tell me what you think of it and so this way i try to do more research offline um also that you don't necessarily get um via just looking at like um twitter um, twitter or or youtube or anything like that where companies will put out you know very like Uh, very grandiose ideas. But then when you ask someone in the industry, like, hey, have you heard of this company or have you worked with this company? And it's just like, yeah, that's pure BS. So I think those things are also, I hope a lot of people are are starting to do themselves also, where they don't just rely on the company's reportings and filings for their due diligence to actually go out into the industry and speak to to people. So yeah, that's where I am. I think that was a mouthful.
0: Definitely. That sounds perfect, right? And that actually reminded me one of the the quotes for from peter lynch book right where he's basically stating hey if you've read the, the annual report through and through you knew more than the 95 percent of wall street professional if you read the footnotes you know more than 99 so you know even quote unquote retail investors can do very you know quality quality high quality and, and thorough research right and that's what you know lots of people we know are trying to do but today let's start a little bit with the macro right because obviously that's the big topic of the whole year right basically a big uh big blanket that, that's waiting heavily on lots of the stocks especially you know lots of the tech companies and obviously with the crisis we are having we are kind of seeing lots of small cracks throughout the system right where basically what's often happening in the crisis is that you know the, the strongest get even stronger right which you know we have seen for example in the uh, in the currencies right where basically U.S. dollars is, is very strong which is causing these small cracks for example in in the Europe right we, we had the situation with the with the credit suits, where they were you know bankers were calling their clients on, on Sunday morning ensuring them that everything is fine everything is, is fine <laughs> from your banker on a Sunday morning and the situation in the UK so, Chris, what's your uh, take on this whole situation? Right? Can we see more of this situation, or where do you see the the biggest risk from all of these small snippets?
1: Um, I think what happens is when we look at when we look back, right? Everything seems like it's twenty twenty. Like, it, how could we miss this? How this was such an easy thing to see. But essentially, there have to be certain circumstances that happen where people don't necessarily pro- like put that into their calculations when they're doing their projections on things. So here's an example. Who would have guessed a year ago that inflation was going to be so high to the point where the Fed would do consecutive 75 basis point rate rises, right? I remember on Twitter, I had posted something of that level. I said, look, they're going to raise rates pretty dramatically. And I got I got absolutely murdered on the comment section. Like, are you crazy? They wouldn't do that. Seventy-five basis points, and this was in July. I said, no, you, you guys, you guys have to like really see like the Fed's main job is to fight inflation, so they're they don't really care about breaking um, breaking the economy. They're going to live up to their mandate. So I would not put it. A, I would not put it um, above Jerome Powell to really take a big hit. So that that acceleration in in rate rises is not something that a lot of companies could have factored into their business decisions. And because of that, they either over invested or under invested in certain parts of their business that pretty much are now starting to show up and uh, pretty much affect the companies in general. So a good example is the pension funds in the UK, you know, they, they did not expect rates to go up this fast um and so a lot of this a lot of the instruments that which by they were doing their um which they had um did not exactly pan out so well in the short term um i do think that there is some systemic risk still out there that we haven't necessarily seen yet so i would be very cautious on being in the market but that doesn't mean that i would ignore a lot of the companies who've much hit deep value territory based on their historical performance and they're they're such a they're such a fundamental part of our daily life whether you're talking about here in the us or you guys in europe or anyone else in asia like can you can you imagine the world without a company like google or microsoft you know so right now this is an opportunity where you're getting these fundamentally these very strong companies that have high margin that are still growing um, for for a discount and that's where a lot of people hopefully are kind of like looking at their portfolios and trying to High-class their portfolios, you know, we're we're leaving an era of Speculation and going into an era of more valuation based um, Valuation based um, Investing and so you when you when you have that you you, you always want to be in some level of growth in my opinion I'm a, I'm a young guy. I have plenty of time to go so I'm always investing in growth companies, but I also want to make sure that the company has, fundamentally has a strong business that's generating free cash flow that isn't going to push them into a point where they're going to have to rely on um, debt, which right now is, as you guys know, is super expensive. If they have to re, if you have to reach out into the corporate debt market right now, you are going to pay a significant premium to what you would have got like a year ago. And because of that, if your business margins aren't necessarily as high your profits are going to take a hit and then it's like a downward spiral until until you go bankrupt so i think we're in a very very difficult time um the only thing i would say is right now is not to panic to be patient high class your portfolio and uh yeah and i think that's that's pretty much where where we are with the macro
0: Definitely, definitely sounds good. And you mentioned that uh, some of the companies are, in in your opinion, in a deep value territory, Uh, obviously lots of people are kind of trying to guess or guesstimate where the bottom is, but uh, maybe the argument I'm often making is that uh, obviously there is the bottom of the market itself, let's say S&P 500, right, but all of the individual companies or different indexes have that bottom on a different timeline, right? and also different maybe sectors or different, you know, types of companies. Let's say if you compare small caps, mid caps, large caps, they are having at the, the bottom at a different uh, time frame, right? So is there a possibility that uh, some of these categories already bottomed? You know, like let, let's say we, if we talk about specific companies, right? Maybe, maybe Palantir already saw the bottom, you know, back in, when was it? March when it was like 6.7. Snowflake was also much uh, lower, right? A couple of months ago, uh, do you think that's the possibility that uh, you know the carnage for some parts of the market is over? Um, not
1: necessarily a hundred percent on board. I w- I want it to be. I'll be honest. I want to hopefully see that this is a bottom, but I think we're gonna have to wait for more data to make that that call, right? So an example is we're looking at PE ratios. I know a lot of companies. There are a lot of people are telling me man, you should really look at this one company, the PE ratio so low, like it's taken such a beating. And I'm like, wait until the new couple more earnings reports come out after the economic impact of all of this, like gets played out. Because if their PE ratio is still low after that, then then we then you have something to talk about. But the problem is, if your earnings take a sharp dive, which we haven't necessarily seen that happen just yet right, for a lot of companies, then that PE ratio makes no sense whatsoever. You're just looking at a backward figure to try to do future investing without realizing that the macroeconomic condition has changed dramatically, right? So if de- if the demand of your product has dropped significantly, like let's say the semiconductor space, I think a lot of people are looking at the PE ratios in semiconductor space and saying, oh my God, this is a great generational opportunity to buy. I would say, yeah, just, just wait a few, few quarters before you make that Call because at the end of the day if demand drops off to the point where your pe Goes back above the the double digit mark. It wasn't exactly the value um, Value company that you thought it was not to say that the semiconductors um, Are are bad. I'm just saying that we are at a point. There's a the whole like um, And there are certain industries that are very cyclical. So when you factor that into it, then then um, then yeah, like There are definitely things that you have to look at um, from a lot of different perspectives, whether it just be the company, but you look at the industry where the industry is going. I am very bullish on semiconductors, but in the short term, I'm still not there in terms of trying to go in heavy with um, some of the some of the products, because I think there was there was a lot of lumpiness in orders and um, inventory build that is still uh, working its way through the system. And because of that. we haven't necessarily seen the impacts of it like this this last week you you saw what happened to amd amd lowered their own guidance and it just took the market and and that with them and it took all the other semis um with it um intel was smart in that intel kind of called it a year like oh not a year but they called it like six months earlier saying hey just expect weak demand and they took a beating they got that out the way early so i think a lot of times it depends on the company's willingness to just come out there and Be honest with investors and and yeah, but this also presents um, great opportunities to kind of start buying and the one thing I will tell most people is not to try to time the bottom because no one successfully is able to do that. The best thing you can do is have a plan on a company and just dollar cost average in, and ride the ride the downturn if you have to like, even if you miss out on a a few good weeks here and there, you know, whatever, it's not going to make a difference. So I would say right now dollar cost average into some really good companies that you think will still be around 10 years from now and fundamentally have a strong business and um, and are going to be needed. So semiconductors in 10 years, I know we're gonna need more semiconductors, not less. So just sure. keep, that in, keep that in mind. So I think a lot of industries are the same way. Like even though oil and natural gas and everything else right now is like going really high, I see this transition coming where a lot of I mean, maybe natural gas will like, relatively stay uh, healthy, but I see demand starting to drop for a lot of um, gasoline products. So if you have like, if you have a business that purely relies on revenue from like gasoline sales, right, like, uh, let's say you're a refinery, you may not exactly see those mar- the same level of margins in 10, 12 years. So, you know, invest, um, but you know, keep that in mind also.
0: Yeah, that definitely, that's a good point, right, about you know, investing in the quality companies and be a little bit cautious about, uh, obviously, the approach in the market, especially in times like this, which a little bit brings the question of, uh, you know, managing your cash position. Uh, do you have any specific advice or how do you personally manage, you know, your cash levels throughout overall cycle, right? You know, how, how, much, uh, how much in terms of percentages of your portfolio is maybe cash at this point? How much was it, let's say, the last year? when the market was, was still flying high. Could you a little bit elaborate on that? I'm about
1: 40 to 60% cash, um, but that's mainly for one of two reasons. Number one is there's a higher level of return versus risk in the two-year treasury. So pretty much most of my cash holdings are in very short-term things. Like if I'm getting a, almost like a four, 4.25% return on treasuries that's tax-free, that's amazing because I work full time and the way that the U.S. tax system works is that we have a progressive tax system, which means that I would have to make 7 to 8% return, right, in order for me to get 4% um in terms of um real real um, real return because let's say i made seven percent well guess what the top three percent is probably going to get taxed because when you factor that into my personal income it'll 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 do that so instead um i'm just like all right let me just buy some two year treasuries you know ride the wave and then you could always sell it these are liquid products that have no issues with liquidity so you can you can clear them out at any time and uh yeah I think that's that's how i do it so this way you're eking out some level of return without um being in a full cash position where you're like you're not getting anything out of it right so you want to look for cash like um cash like entities that are going to yield you uh the same thing in my retirement accounts i am more um i'm more invested in still companies that are more growthy because that money I'm not going to need until I'm 65 and I'm a, I'm, rel- I'm 37. So I still have a long way to go. So I don't necessarily need that to be there. And I, there, there are definitely, um, there are definitely times where I want to just go all in and be like, I think this is the bottom. But as we can see right now with the current events in the market, um trying to time the bottom is not a good idea but but like i said i have a few companies that i'm already starting to dollar cost average in, Mm -hmm. and i'm uh i'm already like slowly putting money to work not a lot but a little bit at a time and i think um i think once macroeconomic conditions start to become a little bit more positive i'll probably double and then triple up my dca um positions on a on a monthly basis you know
0: okay okay so so basically Kind of going uh, against the wave as as the market dives then then you are buying heavier when you are also seeing some of the first glimpses of basically the market turning around is the 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 idea that you need that confirmation that the market is
1: yeah yeah you'd is a there's a theory that i subscribe by when it comes to investing in times like this when the market is an escalate is like an escalator and an elevator. Have you ever got Have you heard that analogy before? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, when things are going down, they're like an elevator. And when things are going up, they're like an escalator, right? When you miss the elevator, you're good. Like, you don't have to worry, like, dude, I don't want to go down very fast. But when it's an escalator, you've got plenty of time to get on the escalator. So you know, if you get in a little bit like past the bottom, it's okay the market doesn't go like doesn't do like a v-shaped recovery like with the exception of covid which literally just had the government kind of step in and backstop everything and just go crazy with investing in um every sort of product you could think about um so yeah there's no such thing as a full v-shaped recovery in markets like this unless there's like some um some strong like liquidity support that's like artificial so i would say you know don't 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 try to time the bottom basically just try to find the escalator and ride the escalator higher because when the escalator starts going up again it's gonna be another five six years of slow positive growth rather than the one two year dramatic drop that we see and it's historical when you go back in history you look at it you're gonna see that you're gonna see a year two years of terrible um, terrible returns and then you're gonna see nice five six years of, of steady you know inclined returns that Pretty much you know you you, you capitalize
0: on mm-hmm. so, so you think it's uh, in a sense simplest for most of the people to basically uh invest as much possible during that first part of the let's say long bull market yeah
1: yeah i would say the, the great the best thing people could do is just have a stop loss right like invest using stop losses where you have like a certain amount that you know that if it goes below in a short period of time, get out and stay out until you see a meaningful change in the business environment, right? So that this way, whatever you're investing in, and most people should stick to indexes, by the way, I'm just gonna put that out there. Most people should stay stick to the indexes. Doing fundamental analysis and research is a very hard thing to do. Um, and it's also prone to a lot of like uh, mechanical risk where I also do options where, so I have to do things not just based on overall return, but also based on timing. So when you have certain level of complexities, when you add the timing complexity in there, it could be kind of dangerous for most retail investors to to go into that route. So I would say to most people, just find an index in an industry that you really like and invest in that, have a general market um, index But then you can also have an index purely um purely um focused on a specific industry that you may you feel is going to outperform and that's the beauty of a lot of the index investing right now where you don't necessarily need to um know the underlying all of the fundamental underlying companies and their their business practices if you believe in the industry overall right so example is i know a person who made a lot of money in um lithium right he's like oh these electric cars are going to be around you know I, I I believe that lithium is you know a key product in the manufacturing mm-hmm. process so if demand is going to go up that means that all the companies that are mining lithium are going to go up with it and so he just bought a lithium ETF and he got really good returns right and so it, it it's kind of it's kind of nice to see indexes that are very like specific to certain things like i don't know if you guys know there's like a kramer index um inverse (laughs) index now and like a kathy wood index (laughs) yeah it's it's i love these things like imagine how being like you know what i wish i could short kathy wood well guess what there's a product that lets you do that it's like i wish i could go inverse on kramer and and buy that okay you know so the the number of indexes that are specializing in like really small ideas or industries is actually Mm. It's kind of interesting to see you know but there is yeah. there is one caveat with with that by the way in that the performance fee i mean the 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 fees can be a little a Management little high fees. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah
0: yeah exactly right because in in a sense as you mentioned that example with lithium right that basically allows you to have very simple thesis where you don't really need to dig deeper as for example we do with individual companies right and and still have very decent results but to, You know, obviously, as with everything, right, the more work you put into it, the better the reward, right? So it's also probably the case by, you know, when people decide to invest in individual companies, that's where the best returns are, but for the price that people really need to do the work, have the conviction, and and that way they can, you know, for example, avoid these management feeds, right, which obviously adds up, right, if you, you know, kind of compound it over the years, so and then you have to complete other end right where people you know can just invest in the index fund you know sleep well at night you know don't don't worry about it so so it's also in a sense that pendulum how how much effort do do people want to spend yeah yeah
1: and also there's also other things too which is there's a lot of like rebalancing back and forth trying to trying to balance your portfolio based on company's overall performance that you don't have to do anymore, right? So that's why you're paying for that fee because you're you're essentially taking away all the mechanical stuff that you would normally mm-hmm. have to do. Like let's say you have let's say you you're a strong believer in let's, let's say lithium and there's 10 companies that are mining lithium right now well guess what one has a project that's going to expand really well another one has another mine somewhere and for some reason the mine gets flooded whatever right and market cap drops like the stock price drops well guess what you should technically rebalance your portfolio to take a lo- lower position in that that company that's that's like that but you don't do that you know like no one is that active so instead you know, based on the portfolio rebalancing, all of that stuff is handled for you automatically so that this way, overall, you're invested in the industry and, and it'll do all the, the the process for you. Also, from a tax perspective, it's more efficient also because you're not constantly buying and selling. Like, let's say, you know, you want you, you think one lithium company stronger than the other. If you end up selling selling it and you have to pay capital gains taxes on it you're gonna it sucks you know especially if you're in a high-income bracket like myself then mm-hmm. then literally like most of your profits are gonna be paid to the to the government rather than you being able to, to use that um, use that towards further like more investing like um, on other stuff you know because every time you sell something and it's in a profit the tax man is going to come unless you're investing in a in a um i don't know about you guys in europe but for us like taxes are like pretty 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 killer especially if you live in like certain states that mm-hmm. are um high income high tax
0: yeah that's a good yeah. point right yeah. actually do, do you take it uh some or obviously you do right but to what extent do you take taxes into account right because let's say you kind of want to rebalance maybe a position but it's less than a year meaning you you would have to pay short term uh short-term capital tax gain taxes would you rather you know like hold the position for longer but what's your take on this right because you basically a little bit uh nudged into it
1: i think people really need to understand their own tax situations when they're investing too because there are certain like certain people right now they're saying oh everyone should just buy dividend stocks and i'm like dude don't don't say that without understanding that there are certain caveats that you should probably mention so here's an example like myself me and my wife we are in like the top like probably five percent of most americans so we we pay a significant portion of our incomes in taxes now if i were to purely buy companies based on dividend returns in my non uh in my taxable like accounts mm-hmm. that's gonna suck for me because even though it looks like i have like let's say a seven percent yield i'm technically only walking away with four and a half because that other three percent is going to end up going towards um going towards taxes right on the other hand if let's say you're retired right you're not you don't have any active income sources and you just have a massive portfolio right you're not you're less concerned with um taxes because you're at the bottom of the tax bracket so if let's say you don't have income but you have like Let's say a two million dollar portfolio, a seven percent return on the dividend might be perfect for you because now you're not paying anything on, on taxes. Honestly, because you 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 don't even meet that that income threshold, whereby you you know you're, you're paying a lot more. So it's something that a lot of people should consider where they are in their income bracket. Um, what kind of account they have? Like when you're buying dividend stocks, you should always buy them in a tax, uh, non-taxable account. Like your IRAs, like we have an individual retirement account. Some people now are allowed to invest via their 401ks. You could do it through that. And, uh, I'm not saying dividends are bad, but I, I used to, I used to, I used to think dividends were, um, a great way to invest money. But I slowly realized after the realization, one of my friends, um, told me, he's like, look, Chris, if the company has enough money, um, to basically give the money back in form of dividends that's that just means that the company doesn't know what to do with the money or their business is not good enough to the point where they can reinvest the money into their own business and over over a long period of time you don't want to be in that route like think about all the companies that um like Berkshire Hathaway right Berkshire Hathaway has never issued a dividend they're like no we have we can do more with your money just give it to us like we're going to take the returns we're going to invest in other things that are growing really fast too so Oh, b- by the way, I, I do want to mention that there is an opportunity for people to buy Berkshire Hathaway. I know I always say, "Oh, buy index." I just said buy indexes, but Berkshire Hathaway is probably one of the best. Like, I don't know why people, more people, don't talk about investing in Berkshire Hathaway. Like, dude, you have Warren Buffett on your on your side. This guy's ekes out a return. He's oh, the Oracle of Omaha is still outperforming the market. Like, everyone is down 30 percent. He's only down thirteen, right? Which is which is freaking crazy but you know
2: i mean yeah, i i would probably really mention great. that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean Sam? i think last years were basically foolish for new investors because everybody somewhat got so uh, you know distracted by all the flying high companies and their revenue growth right but when you really think about what's driving returns long term, that's earnings, that's cash flows, probably dilution, right? And then the multiple expansion or contraction, that's basically the formula, right? So now you probably have to rethink the way you're thinking about growth companies. And you probably have to look at whether they can actually reach the stage where they generate significant, uh, you know, profits, cash flows, et cetera. And so in this case, I have basically in the last month started looking out for companies that don't need to necessarily grow their you know, revenues you know, too much, but still maintain this pretty high growth of free cash flows and uh, net income. So for example, I have recently got into MasterCard, right? Nobody really thinks about MasterCard as a, as a growth company but when i'm ro- looking at their numbers i mean they are constantly growing their their net income like 20% a year which is pretty high you know and uh, their cash flows are pretty high uh, obviously they have pretty significant amount of debt but uh, that's supported by their free cash flows and the debt by the way is raised at very low rates actually very beneficial for them long term so yeah i mean like I used to look at companies like growth companies, like you you can imagine those 2020, 2021 companies that were like hyper growing in terms of revenue. But now I'm like, I'm looking at companies that are growing, you know, 20, 25% in terms of cash flows and EPS. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm pretty confident that if I buy these companies at right prices, which for me means DCA, right? Uh, Then I'm pretty confident that these can actually outperform the market for me. That's, that's my view. My only, my only like negative take on a lot
1: of companies in, in the finance space is that we don't know where their system, like if there's any systemic risk to some of the, some of the other like credit, um, credit profiled companies out there, like I, I definitely haven't done enough research into MasterCard, but one of the things that always like gives me pause about investing in anything that has to deal with the financials is that a lot of the stuff is backward looking and also general market conditions if they change then the business changes also and also like like right now the default rates for the last two three years have been very low when it comes to credit cards default rates you know are are one of those things that can really tank you pretty seriously um also I I don't know anyone that uses MasterCard like I just everyone that I know MasterCard uses... is
2: big outside of us. Actually, they are like really? larger than Visa outside of the US. Europe is very dominant for MasterCard in many countries. They have like 80% market share mm. and in Asia, they are very strong as well. They are growing faster than Visa, by the way. Really?
1: I didn't know that. Yeah. Like for me in the US, I only see either and once in a while you see discover, but most people like. I have my american express that's like my primary card that i use for everything. like i have an american express platinum um and i use that for everything like i get so many benefits for being a member and on top of it just there's so much like return that i have um i can call concierge at any time and you know be like hey can you do this for me and they'll literally jump through hoops so amex is like the the main priority and then i have a visa as a backup because not everyone mm-hmm. accepts Amex sometimes, so you, you kind of have to have um, something as a backup. So Visa is my backup, but I, I swear I don't even I don't think I have one account with Mastercard, and I don't know anyone in my family or within my general vicinity. I'll tell you um, why probably.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, these companies are are like on on surface thought about like they are like peers, right, from investors' perspective, but that's wrong. So, what MasterCard basically is, is a B2B2C business. So they actually offer the infrastructure, their software solutions, etc., to banks and fintechs. They work with them. So I would say that's a key uh, key point because they are not really threatened by you know new innovations. Instead, they are rather working with banks and new fintechs, and you know having them get access to lots of data great software solutions and infrastructure on which is running uh, which they can run their services so for example apple recently introduced by now pay later service right well that is running on mastercard's infrastructure so and there's many of other solutions they have like a start program which basically is funding the startups for financial and commerce space most for the most part and so yeah they are basically on probably as high as you can get when it comes to the uh, ecosystem of finance and e- e-commerce, right? Because they are like, basically, they are railways for financials and uh, commerce. They are securing all the payments and all that stuff. And they don't waive the debt of credit cards, etc. So they think of them themselves as a company as rather as a fintech than a credit card company. They think of credit cards only as one of their devices that can be used on their network. But they're really thinking about mobile, crypto, et cetera. The CEO himself said that they want to offer all relevant payment options inside their network. So whether it's buy now, pay later, crypto, whether it's credit cards, and other solutions contactless payments uh, you know and others they offer them so they are not really in a risk of competition which is what many people think they are but they are not
1: What what is your guys opinion on buy now pay later like what do you think of it as a business model for um because it's relatively new i mean most people don't like five years ago I'd never heard of buy now pay later it was just like oh you paid with a credit card and you paid your monthly you know interest whatever and or you paid off your credit card what do you guys think about that
0: yeah I never really understood exactly the, the difference right there was always some kind of, of option of paying later it's just now it's kind of the bundled in this nice nice wrapping right with the fancy name buy now pay later so you know like what's the difference in a sense right did they just really Made it into very nice package, right? Where where you slice it into into you know, let's say four, four installments, right? But it's it's almost like a kind of a gimmick, isn't it?
2: Um, I think there's two differences that are important. Uh, by, by the way, not all buy now pay later companies are built the same um so you have companies and that is basically mainstream where they offer you to pay in four payments then you have companies obviously allowing you to pay up to like 16 months or so uh then you have companies that and, and they have different ways of negotiating deals right so when you see zero percent apr it's not like they are giving you a free loan it's basically for the most part covered by the merchant actually that you're getting getting this loan and the you know the argument for that is that when you have the option to take uh, an expensive item for a free loan you know basically no interest uh, loan you are more likely to go purchase that uh, that item which is increases the conversions etc at merchant and these Uh, You know, solo buy-now-pay-later companies also argue that they can give their merchants uh, a better way to look at their customer and understand their purchases. So those are like the the two main arguments that sort of uh, go for the buy-now-pay-later companies. Then obviously it's up to you to understand and decide for yourself whether you believe that these buy-now-pay-later companies have a great methodology to measure whether the customers they offer their loans to are uh, you know solvent or insolvent in the long run they obviously have certain uh data points they look at but then you you for you as an investor you have to understand whether you believe or not believe into their capability to handle that well
1: i think in in concept i think it's great i think it's great for business owners um i do see a problem though from a consumer perspective because what i tend to see when i see things like this it's very i don't want to say gimmicky that's probably the wrong word to use but it's something that you know when they're playing on the psychology of humans to basically say you know what we're going to take a very large purchase and take that mindset away and turn it into a small purchase on a monthly basis so now you're, you're more likely to buy so an example is hey, this iPhone that just came out a $1,000. Well, guess what you can do buy now pay later. And it's only $30 a month, oh, I can afford $30 a month. I'll just you know, it's easy. So now you're more likely to buy. So I totally understand that the problem that I see is that a lot of people, especially here in the US that are not financially um, competent, they'll keep using buy now pay later buy now pay later buy now pay later. And they're just building up this giant quicksand like um financial decision around them where most of their disposable income is starting to become buy now pay later in which case now you're you're kind of like it's almost like quicksand but you, you don't I mean not, not quicksand what's a good, better term for it like you know like the frog that's in the boiling water like if you put yeah. a if you put yeah. a frog in the yeah. in the water right and it's boiling it'll jump out but if you slowly you know turn their temperature up it'll stay in there until it dies so it's kind of the same way that I think this is happening right where before at least with a credit card statement you see like two thousand dollars like $2,000. Now you're like, oh, well, you know, it's only $30 a month, whatever. And then another 30 okay, another one. And if you use multiple buy now, pay later, it's like, okay, whatever, you know, it, it's just little things. So I think the psychology <clears throat> of people is that it's taking away this feeling that you're paying a high APR because essentially you are paying high pay APR depending on like which one you, which uh, buy now, pay later service you're going with. Yeah. Because um, if you look at some of the ones like Upstart, Upstart. A lot of the people like I think they provide banking services for um, for some of the I think for buy now pay later or was it a firm? I have to, I have to do more research. I'm not a big fan of buy now pay later. Um, but one of the things that I saw was that I did a calculation on their APR, right? It was ridiculous it was it was more than the credit card companies at one point where it seemed like, oh, well, I just bought this small $200 worth, you know, product. But when you look at the total payments for the entire length of that buy now, pay later scheme, it ended up being almost a third of uh, the price of the actual product. And Mm -hmm. one of the things is the, I don't know if the incentive structure is built and I think it's going to eventually get perverted to the point where vendors are going to be pushing for buy now, pay later, because they might be able to share in some of that, that, that revenue. Right. So it's almost like, imagine right now sam i could say well you know what sell me this specific product for let's say 200 dollars using cash but if i get that person to do a buy now pay later thing guess what i will be able to share that 50 dollar profit from the, the 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 money that the consumer actually pays back to the business itself and the other to the buy now pay later service you know, it always tends to happen. I that think way.
2: it's very dependent on the you know player we are talking about because there are real differences between say PayPal, uh, Afterpay, Affirm, etc. With mm-hmm. the way they they measure these things. So, for example, some offer you some. With some, you have to pay actual interest on your buy now pay later, right? Some mm-hmm. offer you zero percent based on how they negotiated deal with the merchant right so and also your, your some, own
1: credit profile right
2: that's the other thing yeah, too like sure so in comes in some cases the merchant actually covers the cost uh, of the of your binary operator loan in some cases binary operators for example take a late fee right some don't so for example a firm mm. doesn't as far as i know mm. they don't take a, a late fee so when you're missing out on your payments they don't charge you extra money you just have to pay off whatever you uh, you purchased. Uh, so I think when you're measuring binary operator space, it's very new space in terms of regulation. There is a regulation uh, framework that is just building up. Um, there were binary services outside of the US, but more so not really on a lo- global scale, but rather local scale in some you know, developing countries for the most part. Uh, but overall uh, when it comes to like mainstream point of view it's a very new space and there has to be a proper regulatory framework so it's in my opinion it's like in this pretty much same bracket as crypto it's just Mm -hmm. awaiting some proper regulation and then we will see what develops out of that
1: I was find The regulation comes after the shit has hit the fan. You know, whenever whenever everything is going good, no one's like, oh yeah, we don't need regulation. And then shit yeah. hits the fan. It's like, where was the government to protect the consumer? It's
0: like, cool. there you go. Because you, you guys actually outlined the, the big problem, right? Because there are buy now, pay later is this big umbrella under which is hidden so many different schemes, right? So some longer, some shorter, some with interest, some without interest, some with fees, some without fees, right? But from a customer's perspective, it just often you know we don't think about it, right? Especially if if we are talking about some of the items, as you mentioned, right? Maybe it's 200 bucks. That's in a sense like a low threshold to take more care about it, right? Compared maybe, hey, if you are buying a car, then you are maybe or at least should be right a little, little more cautious about all of the uh, all of the things in the statement. So it's, it's basically this like a like a Trojan horse, right? Where basically the, the merchants can you know. Possibly raise the prices a little bit, right? If they see that, you know, hey, people can, you know, just use buy now, pay later, and they are willing to to pay for it, you know, much, the conversion rate is much higher. Maybe we can test to to raise the prices a little bit, right? And of course, then it kind of spirals because uh, we are getting more. Yeah, the conversion
2: rates are actually way higher uh, going off the data we have. Exactly. exactly. They are are...
0: like maybe like 40, 50% higher in some cases and that's insane right because we are basically getting detached from the money when in the old days right and you had like the physical bank notes and you actually actually hand it to to someone that was like this this closest relationship in a sense right and suddenly you saw that hey in in, you know in my wallet there is like a last 200 bucks i i i cannot really purchase that i think it can be useful but it depends on the way you sit But you're going to I mean, if you if, you're st- if you if you if you stack up
2: binary player you know, items like ten of them at once, and you're paying them off, like it, it gets hard and probably tense, and you probably put yourself in a very bad position. But if you if you use it for like one two items every now and then, then it becomes great solution for you, right? It, it, yeah. it depends on how responsible you are with these things. You can go in a bad ways with credit card as well, right? When you use it bad way. But, it can be beneficial for you if you if you know how to use it properly
0: yeah I, and, and it gets harder to be responsible the further you are basically from
1: my dad for the last 20 years well not 20 probably 15. my dad is the type of dude that will max out all his credit cards you know when you get the introductory zero percent apr take that money put it into an interest-bearing <laughs> account and eke out a return and literally he's been doing that for like 15 years so every year he's financed like a few vacations on the credit cards you know like zero introductory right now here's the thing though he's smart because he has cash that he knows like okay you know what my credit card is coming up on on this and sometimes you have to pay an upfront fee but he calculates that into he does a good job of math when it comes to that i did something i did something similar back when i was in um in college where you know my college had started accepting it was this was like 2003 started accepting um credit card payments for for my tuition and um what was cool is i had like for educational um spending i had five percent cash back now what's cool is that the timeline between my student um, my um my scholarships coming in was about one to two weeks um after usually the the semester started like literally the money like the, the 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 school would give you a certain period of time like where you know the money would be coming in but the thing is it was an automated process so i said okay i have an idea so i went to the bursar's office i paid my entire tuition on my discover card right and a week later that scholarship money would hit my account in which case now the, the the school would issue me a refund check right away, like within like a week or two. And by the end of the month, I would deposit it and just pay off my entire Discover card, right? But guess what? Since it was from the university, it looked like I, I ended up getting 5%. So I just used that 5% for spending money and for book money. Eventually they caught on and they stopped it. But I, by that time I had graduated and G'd them out of at least like <laughs> five $6,000, you know? So like you know so they, they were paying the, the the credit card processing fee and i was just living it up for like good four years like i, I am surprised <laughs> and shocked that they didn't discover that you know they were they were actually losing money like this but whatever it's not my problem you know i i, I worked within the mm-hmm. system it wasn't my fault right you guys set yeah. it up you so. just exploited it yeah exactly they 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 I'm get even my last year, they were kind of stupid with it where they would do like $25, like convenience fee to use your credit card. But I was like, dude, this is such a large amount. You're still gonna be in the loss. like, yeah, okay, go ahead. Take this $25 convenience fee. Give me my, give me my money. You know, give me like the, and it was, I I swear, man. It was just like someone in the, someone definitely got fired because someone eventually realized like, wait a second, there's how much money are we losing to these (laughs) credit
2: card processing fees? Now imagine if if many people actually realized the same way you did. Yeah, I mean, and you lost a lot of yeah, money.
1: it's like I said, you have to work within the system. You have to know, you know, know how how things work, right? And then based mm-hmm. on that, you operate. So, because the thing is, though, I also knew that I had guaranteed money coming in within a week or two. So mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't anything like um, it'd be more risky. And it was risky because at the end of the day let's say something happened to my scholarship and the money didn't come in time i would be responsible for that full amount like right then and there right in which case now i have to figure out where i'm going to get that money from but luckily you know a lot of these automated processes like they a lot of organizations like they build these processes to make everything really convenient and easy for the consumer but if you're a smart consumer you can figure out ways to um to like um to game the system a little bit, you know, work within the system, to gain the system. Like I do that a lot with Mm. um, my travel, like, there are definitely I'm not gonna mention it here, because I I have a a loop, I have an inside like secret, maybe I'll tell you guys when we're not live, you know, and and you guys will be like, holy shit, like, that's, that's crazy. But you know, like, these are the things that you have to look around in life and say, Okay, where do I see the possibilities of, like, enjoying, enjoying some of the benefits of of the rules that they've created right to entice you to use the product right but yeah. don't carry the risk of, uh, of that so whenever we're done with this i'll mm-hmm. tell you guys you'll be like wow that's <laughs> smart
0: yeah definitely and you know like the, the more layers of complexity you have in the system the more loopholes, right, right mm-hmm. all of these different uh, different parts which is kind of the, the the property of the system we live in right because you know like the over time there are more and more laws and lots of these systems and institutions and the bureaucracy is always just adding up right it's never it's almost never like yeah, the laws are clear, like you know off the table or anything it's just always the new and new layer so that's where it might not both...
2: also got some advantage of of, of uh, cheap money right mm-hmm. so because bank uh offered him to take some loans for zero percent like literally no you know additional interest so obviously he took a few, few thousand twice uh, once in 2020 and 2021 again uh and he was basically offered to just pay them off with no interest uh in the like two years right so he took that money and obviously put it into the market so he my my
1: dad it would take 18 months zero apr okay a hundred thousand dollars okay every every time he gets it took a hundred grand and put it into something that was like a nice fixed return for like four or five percent what you think thinking <laughs> about it, it's like a four thousand five thousand dollars that you were he was able to do that We just move it but the funny thing is he's my dad you have to be here's the thing when it comes to any of this stuff the the, the credit card companies are just looking for you to trip up so that this way they can Cause the thing is like a lot of them have provisions in them that, Oh, if you miss one payment, boom, the entire thing ends your APR rockets up. So my dad was like, no, I'm gonna, I'm going to G you. You're not going to G me, you know? So, but yeah. like I said, you just, you have to know you have to do your deep dives. You have to do research.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. And you know, sometimes it gets even uh, crazy that, you know, for example, here in Denmark, right for, for some time back in 2020, 2021, that there was even negative interest rates for mortgages, right? So you were basically get, getting paid. Incentivized to money. take it. <laughs> like, you know, like the, the insane world we live in, right? And, and that's where we end, you know, obviously now when you try these uh, crazy experiments.
2: You remind me of of the insanity of uh, negative oil prices. And now we are basically dying for oil at 90 or so. Yep.
0: Yeah, the, the, the different animal, right, obviously.
1: that's what we should you should rename this from the in in the loop to how to g the system (laughs) (laughs) get get in the loop to figure out how to how to play these idiots against each other (laughs) because yeah figure out the bureaucracy how to how to milk the bureaucracy for what it's worth and then eventually someone will catch on but by then you just walk away with all the returns you know
2: yeah Yeah, but they can go after you because you just you didn't break anything Mm mm-hmm
0: but then maybe the, the negative side of it, right? Is that obviously it takes a lot of effort to, to go through all of these loops. And, and exactly as you mentioned, Chris, right? Figure out if they are not basically setting up the trap somewhere, somewhere down the line. So that's also, you know, to kind of get the returns also on your time, right? Because that, that's mm-hmm. obviously uh, sometimes tricky. And Ill. I'll give you
1: I'll give you guys a hint as to the easiest way to do it. None of the systems because of the way that things are structured talk to each other nearly as much as we think so you can trick one vendor into paying off another vendor that's paying off another vendor and you're not exactly doing anything other than just rotating money from all three of them and the thing is each of them are thinking wow i've made sales this is amazing but at the same (laughs) time you're just you're like all right keep keep doing that i mean trust me there's there's ways to (laughs) g this system and you just you remind my dad, me of people drop shipping from Alibaba to Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, and see, that's the funny thing. You would think that, wow, that's stupid. Why would people do that? No, there's, I, I cannot tell you the amount of people that are selling Al- AliExpress shit on Amazon
2: and, yes, and by, making it's, a profit. High pro- making high uh, <laughs> quantities for like two, three dollars, and they ship it on Amazon for like twenty five.
1: <laughs> one of my, one of my wife's friends this dude made a fortune in fidget spinners okay he would get like hundred thousand fidget spinners and then sell them on amazon like and then his total cost for like fidget spinner was like maybe 10 cents and he would sell them for like two dollars and it's such a small product but it was so viral at that time the funny thing is all he had to do is just get in just a little bit early so he saw the trend he he made dude he made a million dollars on fidget spinners right there are so many products that are out there right now that people are just like oh my god this is like the next big thing and yeah. here's a, here's another one where i know someone that made a ton of money in the the headphones like you know the the, the raycons mm. and all this other shit. dude you could get them in china for like less than a dollar and people sell them for 20 dollars here like mm. that is a 20 time return the only thing is you have to be you, you have to figure out a way to sell the product here in the U S you know, cause most people, they don't want they to, they're not going to go to AliExpress create an account and order it. And when you order it, you order like one or two pieces. Most people are going to order bulk and that's the thing. You just have to invest the capital to buy in bulk and then sell at, um, individual prices. And
2: yeah. Yeah. But there are literally systems that allow you to directly ship from the you know, big wholesaler to uh, to directly to the people that buy on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, that too. That's so cool. so at that point, you, you don't even have to have any inventory, right? Because mm-hmm. the wholesaler has it for you. So you just make the money.
1: <laughs> well, the, the only thing with that is that you run the risk of one inferior products, because at the end of the day, you don't necessarily get to evaluate the product before it goes to the consumer. And then the other thing also is that um, you also run lead time risk right where basically everyone here in the u.s they're not they're expecting things to come in at one day two day three days like If you're telling someone to like, oh, you can, you can have a product, but it's going to take a month. Most people will buy, won't buy it. Like just mentality is very like there. So I think a lot of people that I've seen successfully been able to convert, have been able to sell on Amazon using cheap Chinese shit and just put like a different, uh, like non Chinese logo on it. Like a lot of camera equipment, like, like streaming and everything else. Um, not the cameras themselves, but like mounts, um, different things like. They're all mm-hmm. from China. Yeah,
0: They're yeah, all from China. Sense. Yeah, all mm-hmm. that stuff. And also, sometimes it, as you mentioned, Chris, right, it's important to get at that initial burst of of the trend. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, maybe in our feet right, when we are following probably lots of the finance stuff, right, and everything, we are maybe missing on some of the stuff that, that other people see, right. When you would maybe open the feed of some some of your friends, and you would suddenly see some of these like small gauges, maybe you Know there is obviously something like fidget spinner at this point, right? Something that's trendy and we just don't see it because we are not, not in that environment. But people who are able to tap, tap into the culture, then that's definitely imagine
2: when when airpods were basically booming and all the knockoffs you could have sold,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, telling fidget spinners <laughs> who would have thought the guy sold a million fidget spinners,
0: yeah,
2: right. <laughs> it's like very annoying trend but i never would have realized that this could be like growing up
1: i I remember (laughs) you guys remember growing up i don't know if i mean you guys how old are you guys like i'm i'm 37 how old are you andre i'm 25. you're 25 and you are here You're 20 okay so i'm older than both of you guys when i was a kid we used to have fads come out every year right you know like pokemon cards and so on on. it was a year where everyone was buying yo-yos you know like the ones that they're just like stuck (laughs) and and it was just a thing like everyone had to have that stupid yo-yo i remember like every time my yo-yo would break because you know eventually they would i'd go out and buy another one i'm thinking (laughs) man if i was in my 30s at the time i could have Bought a whole bunch of chinese yo-yos and sold it to these idiots i mean to myself probably because i was a kid but, <laughs> but um, yeah it. but but it's like things like that like i don't see that anymore like where what what are these kids doing yeah. now like are they just playing halo or uh, not not halo i think that's old i think um they're playing fortnite is that a thing uh, yeah you
0: know there, right but the, you exactly mentioned it. Right, for example Beyblade or some of some of these stuff and i i think yeah just <laughs> Kids playing with with Beyblades just just outside my apartment. So there are definitely still some physical trends that, that can be uh, used. And also, Chris, remember, right? We we we're here at Europe, we are always considering trends, always like a ten years uh, later. So, so basically we're <laughs> yeah, North growing up, they're also out and We are ten years younger. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, I for but here's the thing. Speaking of trends what do you guys think of the trend to vr because i am starting to see a lot more traction in vr than a lot of people are expecting like i see it at work like my main thing is i see we have ar headsets at work now and um in our hospitals like we're actually using ar to do um, surgical planning right and now the fda just cleared a couple of companies to actually use ar during surgery right so it's It's getting to the point where the technology is improving rapidly and i think um a lot of people still feel ar and vr are cartoony that are very like consumer product they're not necessarily going to have a general like a big impact but i do see a world where a lot of people are going to be using vr headsets um mm. for some level of utilization within their daily life like have you guys used it before? let me just backtrack a little bit have you guys used a vr headset ever before
0: yeah no not
2: yet No. Well, which I one did. did you
1: use sam which one did you use sam?
2: I, I i tried try that the quest Two.
1: the quest Two, my friends what did you think of it
2: i mean it was interesting i mainly just tried out beat saber if you know the game hmm I think it's uh, one of the greatest games for VR so far um mm-hmm. but um I still can't see it as my main driver mainly because uh you kind of get itchy you know after a while wearing S- it and also S- the battery mm-hmm. life right isn't there still
1: so so let me explain let me let me stop you right there and I'm just gonna just throw some couple of things in there that that are gonna help When you look at cell phones in the 1980s and 90s right why didn't they become mass market because they were big they were cumbersome they had limited battery life right the same thing is happening when it comes to vr where the technology is moving to address all the issues that you just said the other thing is you said oh i can't see this be my main driver you're absolutely right like this is definitely not a product that's going to be like everyone is going to just wake up in the morning put on an ar headset you know and then and then you know, i make go to a big
2: distinction between ar and vr though i see okay, large yes, yes. use cases for ar in industrialization like overall when it comes mm. to like architecture and these industries for example and healthcare is a great industry to where you can use ar too i think mm-hmm. uh, vr for me is i think going to stay a niche for like people who specifically want to experience the whole immersive experience inside their homes i don't believe it it really leaves the the home place uh anywhere like i think ar has large use cases that's why many companies are rushing to uh to you know use ar in many of their products uh But uh, VR, I see differently. So I'm personally more bullish on AR.
1: So I agree with you that there's definitely a lot more, like, business use cases for AR than there is for VR. VR is definitely more consumer-focused. But if you realize from a business perspective, the consumer-focused products tend to make more money. Because it's an infinitely bigger TAM that's out there, right? And also at the same time, like... um, consumers are willing to pay premium prices for a product that doesn't necessarily need to deliver a whole lot of business value. Right. So just when I think of, when I think of products, right, I see both use cases, like, is it going to be able to be used in an enterprise basis where the, the customers are going to be very finite to certain industries, or is it a product that's geared toward the mass market mass market tends to be the thing that like really drives the, um, drives the, um, uh, what is that thing called that drives the, the business value use case. So an example is like a BlackBerry like at one point a BlackBerry was centered around the enterprise like it was one of those things if you were conducting any business everyone needed to have a BlackBerry right privacy so a lot of right important. privacy and a lot of the infrastructure that was built around it was built specifically for enterprise clients but Apple came along and built a product that not only was enterprise but technically they didn't have an enterprise focus they just had a consumer general mass market focus well eventually guess what apple won out because the technology was built upon top of it like the enterprise because then everyone ended up having a consumer grade phone that just kept getting upgraded upgraded where blackberry was so stuck on their oh we are we're used for business cases that they never evolved beyond that so i think when it comes to ar and vr there's definitely eventually going to be a melding of of both products because remember it's just at the end of the day it's just like ar is just a headset with a front camera that lets you do see-through right that's what ar is so why couldn't you incorporate a vr headset with a camera at the front that lets you do pass-through vision and and most of the vr headsets the newer ones are actually allowed for that and actually have um color like uh, color oled that lets you see like pass through it's called pass through vision right and what's also really cool about it is that the 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 products it's uh, the products themselves are shrinking significantly like if you look at like uh, this demo product of their um the Mm -hmm. oculus um quest pro like i think it was leaked out it's much much smaller than what we are used to with the giant freaking thing in front of your face and the giant battery pack in the back like it, the product itself is evolving to the point where it's going to be something that can be utilized for both things you know i i do like the hololens is great but it's a 2500 hundred dollar product like literally just just the product itself is like 25 to thirty five hundred. 500. yeah but the hololens
2: yeah. is more like used for military right at this point they got the yeah. contract for military mm-hmm. like 22 yeah, billion dollar one
1: yeah, military and also for healthcare, And there's a lot of there's a lot of other things. So it's it's a specialty product for sure. But like I said, the military also bought a whole bunch of Blackberries, like the if you were working in the government in 2008, 2009, 2010, you had a Blackberry. Right. Well, guess what? Everyone now they have iPhones,
2: you know, so. Yeah, but yeah. I think at this point, because at that point, the focus was enterprises. Right. I think at this point we got way, like a, a, a little bit ahead of ourselves when it comes to like consumer applications and i believe the ar and vr applications for enterprises are very much overlooked the hype is mainly at the consumer side which i believe is not going to come into a fruition too soon i think the enterprise uh, solutions are actually going to uh, you know lead this adoption
1: i I'm only saying I think once consumers become used to a product and it becomes mass market Then the enterprise eventually moves along with it. I think a lot of times enterprises They adopt new technology like way ahead of the consumers But in a much more limited scale and then once a product becomes mass market and then the enterprise look at look at it and say Well, how can we incorporate this into our our end use case, right? Cause what happens is that means that everyone is already used to a product on the consumer end. So think about mm-hmm. all the consumer products right now, like PCs at one point, it transitioned from an enterprise product, right? So everyone who had a computer or used a computer did it through their enterprise, right? Through their work. And then it moved to consumer grade. So everyone started buying, consu- you know, PCs at home. Mm-hmm. And now you were able to play video games and everything on it. And then the adoption super cycle just went nuts. guess what happened everyone ended up buying pcs for both the enterprise and for their home computers like right now everyone has it has it but if they had just stayed in the enterprise model instead of like trying to create um like computers for the home it wouldn't have worked out so well you know so i think that's where we are right now where the early adopters for the technology in terms of business use cases um are things like hololens and everything but i think eventually People will utilize like let's say like the oculus products for other things that may or may not have been real the other thing is having experience with a product for a prolonged period of time gets people to build on top of things right so an example is with the iphone people had an iphone and guess what innovators were looking at the phone and saying well look everyone already has an iphone how can i create the next product that's a business business use case but do it on the platform of an iphone so that it could be utilized by so many people right so an example is there's enterprise software that's on a that you know you create but you create it specifically for an iphone primarily because you know that everyone has it so it's i think it's a very similar thing when it comes to oculus right where if you have these vr headsets and they let's say there's a hundred million vr headsets out there you're more likely to build a product on top of that versus a product that let's say is like a HoloLens that only a few million people have, right? And so now that even the application that you're building or any products that you're building, there's much more limited market for it. So this way, now you're focusing on the consumer consumer product, right, that eventually even the enterprises will end up buying, you know what I mean? So it's almost like a- Yeah, it's like,
2: basically like, in the case of operating systems too. Like that's mm-hmm. why Android and iOS won. Yeah, because it was the most uh, used, you know, systems out there. So naturally, most developers, you know, dished Rim and Symbian and whatever. And just started developing for Android and iOS because most people adopted it. Yeah, I get your, I, I get your idea.
1: Yeah, because the thing is, at the end of the day, you you don't necessarily want to have multi like multiple products that do the same exact thing. If you can build the same functionality into a much more mass marketed um, product, then you're more likely to have like greater levels of adoption, and also the the time to learn will also shrink. Because if you grew up on an Oculus headset, like VR headset you know and your job says okay now you're gonna use an oculus headset to i don't know like on a factory floor okay whatever i've used this for the last five years ten years it's okay bring it on let's go yeah versus learning a whole new product or a new category
2: i just think we get too excited too soon when it comes to like consumer applications and i believe the first adoptions are going to actually happen in enterprise because of the uh because of the ease of use for certain applications where it basically um, removes friction that that was there for years you know yeah
1: all I'm all I would say is I am going to look at both I'm gonna buy maybe some micro I mean I'm already gonna buy Microsoft Microsoft is just one of those companies that's just like knocks it out the park for the last 40 years you know they're, they're not going anywhere and but i do think i'm gonna look at some more meta because i do believe that there is definitely a use case and zuckerberg is the type of guy like you don't you don't (laughs) say what you will about his lizard like looks but this lizard knows how to make money all right and i'm all about making money so bring it on mr lizard man make me more money
0: you know. okay okay sounds, sounds good so, so all right guys my yeah. wife
1: is flagging me down saying uh oh, get <laughs> off the damn computer you know see this is where i wish i had an ar headset. So just put it on and just you know <laughs> yeah. tell her so, i say so. hi <laughs> all right well yeah so, you, so, you know so, one so, of the applicate you know one of the applications that i would have for for it well you know what i'll tell you guys offline because i'll probably get canceled if i said it <laughs> okay okay
0: so, so, so we are ending it yeah. here Next time we will look deeper how to do Amazon dropshipping. So that's it. That's the new podcast. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Oh, podcast. And see you guys later. We will leave, leave all the links to, to Chris and uh, you know his Twitter and everything in the description. So visit him there and talk to you soon.